she was one of four children and that after her parents died, she was just a young girl, you know, 12, 13 years old. And yeah. her, her brother said, okay, Lokil, you're going to have to find a husband. You know, it's oh, time for you to move on out. Uh, you know, because that was the way of the mountain. When right, if, if you right. weren't married by the time you were 14 or 15, you were considered a spinster. Wow. Um, you know, so she, you know, she kept that promise. Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello, readers, and welcome back to the show. This is episode six of season six. And today we're talking to Cindy Sproles. If you know anything about Cindy, you know that she loves the Appalachian Mountains. Now, every time I have an Appalachian author on, we argue about how you say it, because I'm from Pennsylvania, so I say Appalachian. But these more Southern Appalachian um, writers call it Appalachia. So that's fine. We can say it our different ways, depending on where we're from. But aside from loving the Appalachian Mountains, Cindy just um, has a real love and a heart for the elderly. So we get into that. We discuss that and how that inspired this book that she wrote. So with that, let's get to my conversation with Cindy Sproles. Cindy, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. Your latest novel, This Is Where It Ends, released June 27th. Can you tell me about this book? Yes, um, I'm excited about this book uh, because it's actually about um, my protagonist, let me say it that way, is a 94-year-old woman. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at... uh, we're looking at this story through her eyes, which is a little different than the average <laughs> protagonist. Yeah. But uh, this is where it ends is about, uh, like I said, a 94-year-old woman. Her name is Minerva Jane Jenkins. And the story opens up with her husband dying in her arms. And as he is dying, he tells her, uh, he makes her promise, promise to keep my secret, promise to keep the secret. And, uh, and so she, she does, she promises to keep the secret and, uh, then he dies. And, uh, for the rest of her life, she carries this secret. So the premise of this book is basically, uh, how long do you keep a secret, even if it's detrimental to yourself? And, Mm. uh, so she is keeping a secret and, uh, when you, as you read through, she, she will tell you that you keep a secret to the grave. So, uh, you know, she holds on to this secret. So this is a story of her. Uh, and as people come onto the mountain uh, and they want to know what the secret is, uh, then she is working really hard to keep her secret. Right. So through, through all of it, she finds a lot of information out about her husband that she didn't know. And a lot of it is very devastating. So at 94 years old, at her life's end, she's having to come to grips with a lot of things that she did not anticipate she would have to do. So it it's a good story. She's witty. She's funny. Um, and she's, she's sassy, which I love. Um, but she also has a lot of wisdom. And then there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of hurt that she has to work through. So I think you'll like it. Yeah. So it's such an interesting premise. What was your inspiration? 
Well, um, I think the, the, the biggest thing for me was I worked in the elder care industry for 20 plus years. Um, mm. I worked for a, a company, a non-medical uh, company that uh, my job was to place caregivers into the home of the elderly. And one of the things that I found out through those 20 plus years of working with senior citizens was that, you know, when they when they make a promise or when they give you their word, it is gold. Mm. You know, it, it that the, when they give you their word, they mean it. Yeah, uh, and they expect that from other people. So I think that the inspiration for that came from years worth of working in that industry and just getting to know lots of seniors uh, that, you know, what their uh, life expectancy of others is and of themselves. Uh, you know, so that I think that's where the biggest inspiration came from about this, the promise. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit, you mentioned Minerva, but who mm-hmm. is, who is Dell? And can you tell me about their unlikely friendship? I can. Dell is a reporter who works for a newspaper out of Lexington, uh, keeping in mind that this is uh, Appalachian historical. So it's set in the 1800s. Right. Uh, and so he comes to the mountain along with a friend of his named Colton to uh, figure out what this um what the secret is. Uh, they have found some papers uh, that led them to think that there might be treasure there. Um, Dale is in into this for the story. Uh, Colton is into it for the money, mm-hmm. uh, or at least what he thinks is money. Uh, and so um, Dale comes to the mountain, introduces himself, and, and he doesn't get off on the good foot with her. <laughs> Uh, But they eventually become friends, uh, and he hangs around and just uh, gets to help her. He does tell her, you can trust me, because for me, it's not about what the secret is. It's about the people. It's about the relationships. It's about the story. Uh, It's not, I'm not here for anything other than that. Um, And so they develop this kind of unlikely friendship, and uh, as their friendship develops, then they find out that they have a lot more in common than what they are expecting. Yeah, it's interesting. So you mentioned that this novel follows a plot about holding on to secrets. Mm -hmm. So what inspired you to explore that theme? (laughs) Well, I I think again, uh, you know, just, just the thought that, um, when you keep a secret, it's a secret, you know, so how long do you keep it? So, um, you know, we often, uh, I think we, we take those words for granted. If somebody will say, you know, uh, will you not tell anybody? Mm-hmm. And we don't, we will Oh yeah, I won't tell anybody. But then, you know, the next day you find out whoever you said that to you has told somebody. <laughs> so, you know, you, um, so I think for that part of it, uh, it's coming back for me to uh, learning to keep our word and realizing that it's a part of integrity. It is our integrity when we make a promise. And, uh, and one of the things that Minerva says throughout the book is that her mama always taught her, if you can't make, if you can't, if you don't think you can keep a promise, don't make one because it is all about your integrity. And, um, and that is the thing that's important to her. So I think that's kind of party, part of where it came from. Sure. So is there a difference between 
keeping a promise because I, I saw somewhere you talked about your own, I believe your grandmother was married at 14, just like Minerva was. She was. Yes. And, and she kept her promise to be faithful to her husband, which is, you know, commendable because they had what most would call, I guess, a loveless marriage, right? They did. They did. Um, yeah. But is that the same thing as keeping something secret that might be detrimental to keep secret? I think for them, it was the same. A promise mm. was a promise you yeah. know, to them. You know, we, we, we can easily separate that, I think, and say, you know, well, we're not going to let we're not going to keep a secret if it's going to, if it's going to hurt a child, you know, or if we see that, that that right. child's ask us to keep a secret, we're not going to let a child be injured or anything like that. But I think back then, back when my grandmother was young, it was part of it. A promise was a promise. Mm-hmm. And, and she did promise to love and cherish her husband. And she continued to do that. My grandmother did the same, which, you know, it's kind of sad. That, you know, we find a letter that my grandmother wrote, uh, you know, several years after she died, where she was just talking about her childhood and that, um, you know, she she was one of four children and that after her parents died, she was just a young girl, you know, 12, 13 years old. And yeah. her, her brother said, OK, Lokil, you're going to have to find a husband. You know, it's oh, time for you to move on out. Uh, you know, because that was the way of the mountain. When right, if, if you right. weren't married by the time you were fourteen or fifteen, you were considered a spinster. Wow. Um, you know, so she, you know, she kept that promise, and I think she cared for my grandfather, but I don't think that either of them really loved each other. They never really understood love because you know the last few sentences that she wrote was, "All I've ever wanted is to know somebody that loved me." Mm. You know. And so I kind of pulled a little of that, I think, from, um, you know, from the archives of my brain, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, to work into Minerva. Um, so, yeah, I think for her, um, her marriage vow and a promise that she made to her husband it was the same kind of thing. Right. You know, I give my word to do it and I keep it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what are some of the other themes that you hope readers pick up on in this story? Well, I hope that they um, they do pick up uh, the value of our seniors. I hope that as they read through this, they see the wealth of, uh, of information and history that mm-hmm. uh, lies within our seniors. Uh, Minerva was uh, really... Uh, wonderful, you know, to share her history. And, and so I think that's one of the things that I hope readers see is that if anything else, when they close the book, you know, do they have a senior? Do they have somebody in their life that, uh, you know, that's much older, the days are numbered with those people. And what can they learn from those people? What kind of wisdom can they gain from them? And what kind of stories can they gain from them? Because that is our heritage. So I hope that they walk away, um, you know, with a bit of a desire to want to know um, their grandparents and their parents better than what they probably do. Mm -hmm. We talked about your grandmother and her how she influenced the character of Minerva and the relationship between Minerva and her husband. Um, And then 
also I know your your experience with elder care had a big influence, but are there any other ways that um, your background influences your writing? Oh, yeah. I'm a country girl. (laughs) (laughs) I was born and raised in these Appalachian mountains, if you can't tell by the way I talk. Um, I was very much born and raised here, and I love my heritage. I'm I'm very proud of my Appalachian heritage, and, um, you know, and the the type of people that live in these mountains. Um, they're very uh, faithful people. Um, they're very friendly, um, you know, and they'll, they'll do anything for you. Uh, yeah. And so, but I think for me, I, one of the biggest things is I, it, they don't really teach this culture anymore in school. So kids are not knowing, uh, they're not learning about, the Appalachian culture anymore, which is kind of sad because, you know, they don't know what it is to make apple butter. They don't really know where green beans come from. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, those kind of fun things like that. How do we get canned foods, you know? Um, They don't know those things anymore because they don't teach them in school anymore. So for me, I, I really, really hope that I can do a small part to keep that heritage alive. It is something that just kind of burns deep inside of me. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and so I hope that I can keep that alive enough uh, by some little, you know, some little piece uh, so that other people get an opportunity to visit here and come to our mountains and, and know that there is so much more here than, you know, just trees. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So you grew up in the Appalachian Mountains, which I say I Appalachian because I'm from Pennsylvania <laughs> and the, the Northerners, you know, say it wrong, I guess. And and you still live there now? I do. I have lived here uh, short of about three years in my entire life. Yeah. Uh, I lived in Illinois for a little while, lived in South Carolina for a little while, but South Carolina still kind of falls in. Yeah. Into the mountain range, even though I was on closer to the coast. Um still falls into the to the mountain range but uh just short of a few years I've lived here all my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure you've seen a lot of change over those years. We have seen change. Um uh some of it good, some of it bad. You know, a lot of the the coal country of Appalachia is very poor. Uh and so um you know, we've seen the change here with the coal companies closing and more mm. and more people, um, you know, thrown out of jobs and in poverty. And a lot of them are less educated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when you get up into the mountains, uh, a lot of them are less educated. So, um, you know, I've seen those changes happen through my lifetime uh, and uh, wish that it could be better. Yeah. Um, you know, for that. But, um, you know, we've also seen good things too. You know, we've seen uh, things grow and more and more people come to this area to enjoy it and learn about it. So, you know, we've seen kind of both sides of the spectrum, uh, which is nice, you know, to be able to say that, you know, that we have both both things, uh, people coming from, you know, from all over. More and more people are moving here. Uh, in the last year, mm-hmm. even our own congregation at church, we have 
probably nine families who have moved from California to oh, wow. Upper East Tennessee. <laughs> you know, it's like, well, why did you come here? <laughs> why did you choose Upper East Tennessee? Uh, and, you know, of course, our cost of living is much less here. Uh, you know, they could sell their home, their smaller homes for a million dollars and come here and buy a really nice house, you know, for a hundred or 200,000. So right, uh, we're seeing great growth. You know, our church is growing uh, from people who are coming here, but they, they like the culture. They like the, uh, the area uh, where you live in a moderate climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think people are just learning to enjoy what we have to offer. Right. Yeah. That's cool. And hopefully you can, you know, educate them on the, um, heritage that they have in that. I hope so. Area. Yeah. Not very far from me. Um, only a few minutes from me, maybe 20 minutes from me is Jonesboro, Tennessee, which is the oldest mm-hmm. town in Tennessee. And every October, Jonesboro has storytelling festival, national storytelling festival, and they actually have the national storytelling um, venue here, you know, so it is a wonderful place where tons and tons of people can come and just enjoy stories. Um, You know, some are sad, some are funny, uh, but, you know, just be able to be immersed in storytelling Mm-hmm. Uh, is one of the one of the fun things about Lambeth in this area, and I think more and more people are learning to enjoy that. Oh, that's wonderful! So, tell me about your path to publication. How did you become a published author? A lot of sweat and work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot of sweat people. and work. Uh, no, it. You know, I'm. I am probably a late bloomer. I didn't really start writing. I've always been a writer from the time I was a child. But when my when I became an adult, the the one thing I did was put my family first. So I waited until my children were uh, grown or mm-hmm. you know high school where they didn't need me as much uh, before I actually set out on uh, really learning the craft of of writing. Um, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had, I guess, worked for about eight years, <clears throat> you know, just learning the craft. It's not something that you learn overnight. No. Um, and so I, I worked probably about eight years learning the craft before uh, my first novel came out. Um, but it, it just, you, you just have to continue to do it and do it and do it and stick with it. Um, but but the first novel that I did was also an Appalachian historical novel. And, and it, it actually was a novel that kind of rebooted this Appalachian genre. Um, oh, I think cool. the, what was really the, the title? The, the title of that one book was um, Mercy's Reign. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and um, I think since, be, I mean, there, there were some books that kind of had that flavor of Appalachian, but mm-hmm. they weren't really what you would call Appalachian historical. Um, yeah, you. I mean, you could look back at Francine Rivers and see some of her things and think, you know, this is close. It's that flavor, right? Um, <clears throat> but um, the difficulty for me becoming published at the in the beginning was that um, they called my writing literary, and at the time, you didn't do that. You know, mm. literary was not what you did. <laughs> And of course, you know, those writing wheels have to spin around. And if you're patient, you know, it'll come around. Um, And so we did. But I think the, the, 
the closest book to Appalachian historical would have been Christie. And I don't know if you're young enough or old enough to remember Christie. Yes. I, well, um, that yeah. probably would have been the last really what you would call Appalachian historical. So when uh, Kriegel stepped forward and said, okay, we'll give it a try. Um, then I think it kind of relaunched that, um, that genre, because most publishers would say, I'm not really sure where to put this on the shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so we were happy when they <laughs> when they first did. And then, of course, Mercy's Rain came out. It was very successful. And, and then tons of people started writing Appalachian Historical, which tickles me. You know, I'm, I'm happy that people are starting to do it, because like I said earlier, you know, it just kind of helps people know a little bit more about the culture. Yeah. But it took um, it took me at least eight years before Marcy's Reign came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I wrote nonfiction on that was kind of the wheelhouse that I had in the beginning. Uh, but I learned mm-hmm. fiction on the side, um, you okay. know, because uh, fiction was where my heart kind of lays. Right. So, um, you know, you, you learn one and you, or you kind of do one and learn the other. <laughs> right. So, um, but yeah, it took about eight years for that to happen for me. And okay. um, this, this is where it ends is my fourth novel. And then my fifth novel comes out next year. Wow. Tell me a little bit about your research and writing process. I know you have a lot of knowledge just from your family (laughs) history and from where you live, but how do you go about making sure that you uh, get all the details for your novels? Well, the unusual thing about Appalachian Historical is uh, you just have to keep the history right. Uh, because all of the rest of it is going to vary from depending on where you stand, where your foot stands in the mountain, you know. Um, but um, yeah. I, I try to put a, a historical fact in each book, something, you know, that um, and that is the thing that I, I really work hard to make sure that I get the the history correct and, uh, you know, the facts of that kind of that kind of thing correct. Um and so I spend a lot of time uh, just, you know, researching those specific sideline stories that that have the history in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that just like anybody else. You know, I hit the Internet. I go to the library. <laughs> I do I do my research like that. Uh, as far as the Appalachian side of it, the people side of it, um, I am fortunate enough to, like I said, have worked in this in- elder care industry. So to be able to um, pick the brains of a lot of these older folks uh, that have grown up in this region and get their stories and get their phrasing and how they say things and, um, you know, what they mean when they say them, um, those kind of things, those are the things that I've gleaned from uh, just working with people. You know, anytime I run across somebody above 80, I like to sit down and talk with them, mm-hmm. um, you know, and get their their idea of things. And and just, you know, the dialect of the mountains, um, mm-hmm. it varies so far, you know, from where, again, where your foot stands on the mountain. But um, to pick up dialect and those kind of things just comes from having talked to the people, um, you know, from that part of it. Um, right. So it, it's fun to do research on those kind of things, um, but a little more difficult 
uh, because, uh, you know, we're losing those people every day. There will come a time yeah. when those people are no longer around for me to be able to pick their brain on stuff. So I try my best to write everything I can down. Yeah, uh, it's all it's all such a joy and such a like I said a box full of gold you know yeah uh, to be able to have those um, those little stories and and things that make you uh, you know our phrases the way we phrase things here in the mountains um, you know are fun <laughs> yeah uh, and so I have to be careful when I write um, that I don't put some of the things in there not that they're bad things but that uh if you're in Pennsylvania, you may, you may not understand what it means. Right. Um, you know, so part of the historical or not historical, but part of the research has to come in uh, is, you know, how much of that can I use that I think that somebody in in Kansas or, you know, mm-hmm. Michigan are, are going to understand when they read the novel. Right. Uh, so you have to kind of, I could really get heavy with it. Um, sure. Yeah. But it, it may not make sense to everybody. So. Right. That is part of the research too, is you know, trying to find out how far can we push the envelope. <laughs> yes. Well, um, so what are you working on next? You said this is your fourth novel. Mm-hmm. Um, no. The next one coming out is called Coal Black Lies, C-O-A-L, mm. Coal Black Lies. And it is in the mountains of Virginia, which where I live, I sit kind of, uh, I'm 13 miles from the Virginia state line. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm 30 minutes from Kentucky or not Kentucky. I'm sorry, from North Carolina. I'm about 50 minutes from Kentucky. So, um, this next story comes out in, um, in June of next year, but it is in the coal mines of Virginia. So again, different, different, uh, you know, terminology that you have to study and learn, but it is called cold black lies. And it's about this, you know, we all tell ourselves uh, lies a lot of times. We don't want to call them. We don't want to admit that that's what they are, but we do lie to ourselves a lot about a a whole lot of things to make us feel better about ourselves or to make us uh, justify something that we've done. And so cold black lies is about those lies that we tell ourselves. Yeah. And, uh, and there's also a little girl in Cold Black Lives that is uh, a Down's child, a Down syndrome child. Mm. And she is the one who helps this family realize the lies that they've told themselves, the things that they believed uh, and how wrong they were about those things. So um, that's what that book is about. And I'm excited for it to come out. We're working on the edits on it now. So mm, that's great. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So this is a question I ask all my guests. Mm -hmm. How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present? Oh, I think that um, the history, you know, (laughs) I I remember uh, reading one time that uh, Abraham Lincoln said that um, if there is a country with no history, then there's a country that is lost and Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, that's paraphrased. That's not a direct quote, uh, but it is so true. And I think we need to know our history. We need definitely to know our history. If we don't know our history <clears throat> and we don't learn our history through stories, then we don't know how to approach the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I think that it's vitally important that uh, we know history through story. 
Yeah. Um, you know, so that we know how to move forward in the future. Right. Yeah, I agree. Well, Cindy, this has been a great conversation. What is the best way for listeners to follow you? Um, they can find me on my website, which is www.cindysproles, it's S-P-R-O-L-E-S, sproles.com. And then, of course, I'm on Facebook under that same name, Cindy Sproles, mm-hmm. um, and Instagram. I tried to keep it simple. Well, good. And we'll link to those in the show notes so people will be able to find you. Thank yes. you so much for being with us today. This was great. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate your time. Well, friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Let me remind you to visit the show notes so that you can find many helpful links, including a link to Cindy's book and to her website and her social media. Um, There's also a link there to join my newsletter list. So you can find all these links either in your podcast listening app or on my website at alisontreat.com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Also, a quick reminder of ways you can help out the show. If you follow us and leave a review, that would be super helpful. It helps other people find the show. But also, when you are on the show notes, join my newsletter list, and you'll get a weekly newsletter about um, the books I'm reading and what's new on the show, and the research I'm doing. So if you think that you'd be interested in that, make sure you sign up for my newsletter list. Now, my friends, I'm going to leave you with a quote. And of course, this quote has to do with promises. Now, I thought it was appropriate that I found one by Abraham Lincoln specifically. He said, we must not promise what we ought not, lest we be called on to perform what we cannot. So my friends, don't make promises you can't keep, but do keep reading historical fiction. And I will talk to you again next week.